the ever-deepening and awakening of the Dhamma in our heart-minds, there are practices that are an enduring resource of inner strength, real strength, that support our sense of confidence and faith in ourselves and faith to carry on on our path of practice, on our path in life. And it's something so basic sometimes, some of these enduring qualities, that we often underestimate its power to be a source of transformation for us in our lives. And one of those uh, powers is the power of patience that I'd like to speak about this evening. (coughs) At the beginning of my practice, I became really interested in patience, and I wanted to look into it more because actually... um, That's my birth name. My mother gave me that name. And I thought, well, at a certain point in my life, I thought, I knew she gave me that for some reason. There was a lot to handle, just like each one of us in our lives. When I came to the Dhamma, I also understood that the development of the paramis were really, really important in order to uh, have a very firm foundation from which the Dhamma could grow, from which the possibility of transformation could take place. And the paramis are those virtuous qualities that lead to uh, complete liberation of the mind and heart, to the purification of all the defilements that really cause us and others a lot of harm. So some of the paramis, for example, are generosity, loving-kindness, equanimity, resolve, and there are others. And there's uh, patience is a big part of of these paramis. But it's not a quality that gets as much airtime as the other dharma talks that we hear, uh, usually. And it seems so practical and everyday like that it's kind of unimportant. You know, it's a kind of ho-hum part of the Dharma, but actually it's a really important part of the Dharma. It has such far-reaching value that sometimes we don't even understand the power of it. So I'm giving all all the energy tonight uh, on this quality, this virtue of patience. The Buddha would say that patience is the highest virtue, the highest virtue of all the virtuous qualities, the ten that sometime we'll probably go over all of them uh, during one of the talks here, but of all of them, it said that it, it really helps all of the others to be developed. Sometimes uh, when one of our teachers, Sayadaw Ji Upandita, would sense that there was some impatience in our practice. I would hear from him, at least, that the path to peace is paved with patience. And there were several times I would hear that along the way. I'll give you some stories uh, as, we, as I go forth in, in, the, in the stomach talk. So I wanted to give it the nourishment of wise attention this evening and to see whether it can help us strengthen uh, our hearts and minds on this path. I just want to say that 
Sometimes you hear the word heart and mind interchangeably from all of us, and actually it's one thing. There's one word in the Pali language, which is citta, and citta means heart-mind. So they're not separated, actually, in the Dhamma. And there are times when some people, and I'm one of them, really feels that the, the base of the mind is in this part of the body. It isn't up here. So it, sometimes it is referred to as the, the base, uh, the mind base, which is around the heart, the area of the heart, not in the heart. So uh, we, we want to really pay special attention to this in our practice because usually at certain times we're, we're rushing a bit. We want things to happen quickly. And because of that kind of uh, leaning forward in our practice or striving, it really sets us backwards rather than keeps us on a kind of continuous uh, gentle, persevering strength, moment by moment. We're used to most things in our society being done quickly. So it conduces to impatience. Uh, and I'm, I'm starting to see with the fastness, the quickness of life, that patience is becoming a lost art. And we really have to remind ourselves of the beauty and the power of patience. In the ancient language of Pali, which is the language that the Buddha's teachings were first translated in, the word for patience is kanti, K-H-A-N-T-I. And that also is translated into endurance in, um, at some, in some parts of the translations. And in our practice, what it means is that we endure, we stay with what's happening, we stick with the present moment changing and being with that ever-changing present moment. Even when it takes a long time, you know, to show some results, some moments of insight, some moments of um, a kind of deepening uh, faith in our practice to keep going. So when faith is not possible or confidence is not possible, we really have to bring forth the patience. When it's difficult for me, I have to remind myself that it's a path that takes time. I mean, we, it's, it's somewhat unfortunate, but sometimes inspiring to hear and read the stories in the suttas about certain individuals who have become just kind of maybe who sees the Buddha holding up a flower and just right away understands that and becomes fully enlightened or that there are 500 you know, monks or nuns and all of a sudden hearing the word of the Buddha, they're all enlightened. And it takes just that moment. But we have to remember that there were probably countless moments before that that there was a preparation for that maybe even lifetimes. So I found it's really true that this path and the, and the patience that we, that we use to walk this path is worthy of our, the energy that we put into it. It's worthy of our time. It's worthy of our uh, devotion. 
I've found that it's really true that patience is endurance. Um, there were times when with one of our teachers, Manindraji, I would see a look like of upsetness on his face about something uh, that was happening in the moment. He, he had a certain way of kind of his lips going down and his eyes being in a, a certain, had a certain gaze. And, um, and I would say, Manindraji, I would kind of call him on it and say, Manindraji, are you upset? Is there something going on? Is there upsetness going on? And he would say a few things, but one of the things he would say is, my path is not yet finished. And here he was, this amazing kind of, as Joseph said, kind of a quirky, (laughs) but brilliant Dhamma teacher who knew so much of the suttas and the Abhidhamma and the kind of higher understandings, the deeper understandings of the Dhamma. And uh, there would still be, you know, stuff going on. I mean, you could kind of see in his face, and he would admit it, too. But then he would also say, my path is not yet finished. And that was such an important thing for me to hear several times in my relationship over many years with him. My path is not yet finished. It gave me, like, the permission to not need to rush this whole important and precious path that I'm on. Good things always take time. Trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. And so sometimes that gives me a lot of heart and patience that I can do that too. Sometimes wanting to speed up things actually makes things go backwards. You know, like certain times I'd approach in my practice, another one of our teachers, Seda Upandita, you'll hear stories about him because that's the experience we've had um, with him and other teachers, but he was a teacher of mine for a long time, and I did most of my um, intensive retreats with him. And so whenever I wanted to speed things up, he would always sometimes just tell me, if you continue in this way, you will go backwards. And I'm quoting him. I'm quoting his translator, because he spoke in Burmese and some Pali. If you continue in this way, you will go backwards. You know, trying to rush things along. So always do remember that. This is when I was over-efforting or striving or pushing myself to sort of get to a certain place that I imagined would be the place that I needed to be, but then be really not uh, present with whatever was happening in this passing, present, changing moment. There was one time when I was um, in my first month-long retreat, Uh, way back in the 1980s. I was far from home, and I had three... um, Some some of the... Two of my children were teenagers, and then the other two were not yet teenagers. There were, I think, five and maybe 11 or something like that. And so I never knew whether I could get to another retreat again. And that's what was always told to us, that make good use of your time because you never know what's going to happen. 
So I went to that retreat with a lot of ardency and too much ardency. And sometimes I would, in the beginning times, I would really push hard, kind of stay up um, a lot of during the night or wake up very early in the morning. And uh, then I just lose all my energy and, and feel like the next maybe the next days I, I wouldn't have any ability to stay awake in the sittings or to even the important Dhamma talks that I wanted to hear. And so I realized this is, I'm really striving too much. This is really kind of like um, going back. That was one of the times when Upandita said to me, if you continue in this way, you'll go backwards. And I remembered um, going to him and saying, what should I do? This is, you know, I was trying to impress him with my ardency. But his answer to me is, you must take good rest. And I was really surprised because he's one of the teachers that really talk about energy and effort a lot. You know, in fact, the Buddha gave more talks on effort and energy, I hear, from others who know the suttas really well, than any other um, of, of the um, qualities that we could have on the path. So it's really important to understand this effort, energy, and when we're striving too much and when we need to have a sense of patience as we go along. So when Upandita said to me, take proper rest, so, uh, you know, I inquired what that meant, and he said, take full, your full four hours. That, <laughs> that was what was allotted to us. You know, we had to... We went to bed at a certain time, and then uh, usually it was about 11 o'clock at night, and then the bell would ring at 3 in the morning, and that's when we would start. But um, then, you know, one gets used to it, and, and then you, you just really have gentle, persevering effort all along the way. And if your effort is that kind, has that kind of continual continuity, it can happen. You know, then you, you have longer times to practice but with gentle, persevering effort, not pushing yourself, not, um, you know, overdoing it, not kind of having a sense of striving for something out there, but really staying with this moment and this moment and one moment at a time. So that really paid off to be able to do that. Patience activates or brings with it many other uh, qualities that help us on the path of practice. It helps us navigate um, through all the ups and downs of our practice and not give up on ourselves. And it helps us to remind ourselves that this has far-reaching value. It's not about getting anywhere in this retreat. If you've got that idea, then that's striving. You know, to, it's better to let go of any idea of trying to get anywhere in this retreat. Just have a sense of you're going to do the best you can to stay with the present moment, whatever it brings up, because it can give us that endurance that we need. Um, it's not a 50-yard dash, as one of our teachers, Seidel Utejaniya, says, it's not like one fast thing. It's more like a marathon. And this could take a good bit of our lives. 
So it's not only to remember to stay open to the ever-changing present moment, but it's also to maintain a quiet inner faith that can keep our hearts moving in the direction of our highest potential. It gives us that enduring gentleness, yet clarity of purpose, to remember that all the time. We're out for the long-range plan. It's really not this short-range, got-to-do-it-all-now. That keeps us really busy and really just going fast from one thing to another. So I related to every moment as an opportunity to see what could come out from that kind of spaciousness, that ability to really stay present. And it, from that present spaciousness, things would arise in that would, that would be totally new. Insights that might be very, um, it could, they could be very refined, but they were like the connecting points to other refined moments where they would all form an aha moment together. And the mind and heart could be quiet enough to see that instead of rushing around with it and trying to kind of get it out there somewhere in the future. For a number of people in our Western culture, patience is regarded as a weakness um, because it's so quiet and reserved and unassuming. So in spiritual circles, it's really respected and highly regarded. Like the Buddha said, it's the highest virtue. It's the highest virtue. Sometimes people think I'm quiet and reserved and unassuming, but I can be a lioness. You ask anybody who knows me <laughs> around me. and it's, it's kind of having that reserve inside that you know when to put it out there. Sometimes, you know, it kind of gets out beyond me, but... Um, so His Holiness, I love this quote by him. It's quite believable. He says, when it is said that one should be patient and withstand trouble, that doesn't mean that one should be defeated or overcome. The very purpose of engaging in the practice of patience is to become stronger in mind. And also you want to remain calm. In that atmosphere of calm, you can have wisdom. If you lose patience, if you lose your mind, floundered by emotions, then you have lost the power to see clearly. But if you are patient, then you don't have to lose strength of mind. You even increase your strength. And of course, he's a testament to that. I mean, when we know his history and what he's gone through, you can really feel that there's a lot of power in his words, in, his, in the truth of his life there. Mahasi Seodao, our grandfather teacher, the, the teacher of Upandita and also Manindraji, and the grandfather teacher also of Utejaniya, has, he said, um, patience has a strength capable of preventing hatred in one's own heart. I'm adding that. It's resembling the force of an army. That's a strength that patience has. It resembles the force of an army, an army of patience. The Buddha said that a person equipped with this strength is a brahmana, is a noble one. 
So as I mentioned, um, Seda Upandita, our teacher from Burma, is well known for one who encourages continuity of mindfulness. And this is an aspect of effort or energy. Sometimes whenever he sensed that in some way I was uh, pushing or I was kind of leaning into the future, wanting something else to happen, and he could clearly see that there was some imbalance in my practice, he would chant these Pali words. I, I can't repeat the, the tone or the chant, but the Pali words would mean patience is the supreme virtue. And the words in Pali are kanti paramam tapo titika. So I would hear those, I heard those words several times from him. And all he had to do was see how one of us would walk in, and it might be slow, but there was, there was a way that he was kind of psychic to one's dharma, um, what's going on in one's dharma heart. And it's like he would know before you would even know what's going on. So this time I was walking in and I was kind of ready to give up, actually, impatient with my practice. And so that's when he chanted that. And, uh, okay, I'm remembering now. One of the translations is really beautiful of Kanti Paramam Tapo Titika. It means patience is the best devotion like to just really having that kind of devotion to your practice that you're, you're able to bring that patience to it. It deserves that because you're devoted to it. Another way it's described as is the noblest austerity. Because you, need, you, you give up what you want. You give up your striving. You, you have renunciation. And um, you're able to go forth with a, with a sense of just staying upright on your path without leaning into the future. So during one of my own personal retreat times, this was a, a few years ago, I recognized during that time I was practicing at the Forest Refuge where many if not all of us have practiced already, um, I recognize that there was this not-so-subtle sometimes moments of comparing and judging myself in relationship to others, in relationship to my past practice, in relationship to what, you know, my goal was, uh, which was, you know, a, a mistake in itself. Um, but I recognize those moments were manifestations of impatience. And underneath it all, underneath the judging, or what was feeding the judging or comparing mind was an impatience and really had to bring uh, mindful attention, mindful awareness to that. So whenever you feel like you're, you're kind of moving ahead of yourself or comparing or judging yourself, Check whether to see that it's being fueled or there's really kind of a hidden quality of impatience there. And see if you can just bring a gentle awareness to that, to that moment. We forget about those things. They're so, sometimes the things that are most uh, obvious really are most discreet. They're most hidden. So, 
living in this culture of instant gratification, those expectations which are, you know, part and parcel of impatience are lurking around. So we need to kind of see that cluster of things that are happening. Impatience, expectations, um, then uh, comparing ourselves with others or our past retreats or um, other, other people around us, of course. So I needed to really settle back and realize that, yeah, the path to freedom is paved with patience. It's like every step of the way. That doesn't mean you have to go slow, by the way. So I wanted to say when we're in community uh, space, go at community pace. You can still have patience doing that. One time I caught Manindra, or one of the first times I was Manindraji, uh, we were walking together, and um, he was walking very fast, and I thought he was in a hurry to get somewhere. And I said, Manindraji, you know, I thought walking was always like lifting, moving, stepping, and we happened to be in a retreat center. And he turned to me and he said, "Uh, mindfulness does not mean slow. You know, you can go mindful at a regular pace. So just reminding you of that, um, you know, when you're in the dining hall line and you're going lifting, you know, and and ten people are behind you going... So so community pace can still be mindful and patient. So I had to remind myself that this... uh, The seeds of liberation are being planted moment by moment, and they're going to take root. They're going to find the stems that come up through the, you know, the darkness of the soil to looking for light, and they're going to have bare leaves, flowers, and fruit in their own time. You can't rush that process. It it's, has its own unique process. I was um, reminded when I was looking at this um, talk this evening that I was, a long time ago, I was with a partner and I really wanted this partner to be in the Dharma and to, um, you know, participate in retreats and read Dharma with me, etc. And that was not his path. That was not the unfolding of his path. And one day um, when I was saying to him, kind of trying to convince him and all of that, and he said, don't pull my petals open. They're not ready. And I just really got that, you know, from somebody else. Like I was trying to pull something open that it, it just wasn't the timing for that particular natural growth to happen for that person though a beautiful person, you know, with a lot of paramis, a lot of beautiful qualities. And so I, I, took, I, I took that understanding for myself, too, that I really can't pull my petals open. They have to go at its own natural pace. So during that particular retreat at the Forest Refuge, there was this little sign somebody had put on the bulletin board from Ralph Waldo Emerson that said, Adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience. 
And so I thought I'd, I'd better give myself a little mantra, you know, because it was difficult for me to not have... I'd had this month of time to be away from all my teaching responsibilities and family, etc. And I really wanted to make the most of it, but I really had to um, go at a, a pace that was really in tune with the nature of this body-mind continuum to unfold. So I wrote on this little piece of paper, and I kept it with me. I even put it in one of the walking rooms at the, on a windowsill, and I would read it every so often because I was really feeling the impatience coming up. And so I copied it and, and remembered it, and here it is. This unfolding process is happening in its own natural way and has its own pace and uniqueness. And so, you know, even after 40 years of practice, we still have to remind ourselves of patience. So it's more inclined to arise if we remind ourselves. But reminding ourselves in a, in a good way. You know, like my mother was, you know, a, a good enough mother, let's say. But whenever she said my name, which is patience, you know, in, in Spanish, or even, uh, you know, the Span- Spaniards were in the Philippines for a long time, so we have a lot of that language. So she would say, paciencia, and she would say it in like, like I, I kind of had to wake up and there was a kind of, so we don't want to say to ourselves, patience, patience, like we're, you know, we're putting the finger, you know, saying you've got to have patience, but to say to ourselves in a gentle way, something like, this takes time and it's happening in its own unique way. And it's not going to be like the yogi who sits 15 minutes longer than you. You know, it's, it's going to be, you're, you're sitting there. Who knows? That yogi could be fast asleep. And you are, you know, wide awake for 45 minutes or moment to moment. You don't really know. So, you know, adding that to our practice to remind ourselves in a gentle way that it's unfolding as it should. There's no other way it can be. So patience is the antidote to striving. We live in a culture where striving is kind of a virtue. You know, that if you strive for this and you strive, and it is, you know, it's good to kind of go for what's beneficial in our lives, go for what's helping others and helping ourselves so we can help others. So that I'm not talking about that, but when we strive so that we just knock everybody and, and don't even respect our, our inner life because of this striving. So pa- patience is the antidote to that. And a lot of the hidden defilements that come with striving, for example, attachment to results. Um, so this is something that we need to look out for. There's one yogi, it's also a good friend of mine, she had this it's now kind of a famous quote uh, when she came to me one time in, um, in retreat I said how was your morning and she said oh it was great she said but Kamala there is nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of your day <laughs> because, because she, just, she just had that you know and she was reporting to me the next day and she said she just had that the whole day and found that it just got in the way 
So uh, attachment to results, aversion if it's not going the way you want it to go, and disappointment because of that. You know, it didn't go the way you want it to go, so there's disappointment. One of um, the teachers of our time, Swami Satchitananda, I think many of you are familiar with that uh, guru, he said, no appointment, no disappointment. (laughs) And so I remember that in terms of striving. And then there's self-judging. You know, a lot of self-judging when there's this striving. And when it's, it's not good when we're striving. You know, all of these hidden defilements come into play. There's one uh, quote I heard from Achan Shah, which was really important for me at that time. Patience is the supreme incinerator, meaning it burns up the defilements. And it's really true. I mean, then there's an ability to see what's coming up in the heart-mind at the deeper levels. And then with that kind of clear, pristine, uh, mindful awareness, it, it's seen in its truth that it's impermanent. It doesn't, it doesn't um, make for any lasting happiness, the dukkha nature of it and the impersonal nature of it. It burns it up, those kilesas, in that kind of truth. So there's a joy in practice when there's patience, but if you notice that when there's no joy in practice, that's when we're striving. So when we're feeling like we're just grim and just trying to you know, make this next sit happen or whatever, you know, get to some place in practice, then, and there's no joy, then we know there's some striving underneath. So there needs to be some measure of patience, or remembering it at least, that allows us to be with what's showing up, what's un, with what's unfolding naturally, and be with that present moment in complete and full presence. We might say that's what mindfulness means, having fullness of mind in that moment. So there's this inner joy and um, it gives us the energy to keep going. So during that time uh, when I was at the forest refuge I kept bringing the importance of the continuity of awareness moment to moment situation by situation. Um, It didn't need to be a pixelated view all the time sometimes just a general sense of the body moving through space or taking one natural uh, step at a time, not needing to go that slow, but just taking a step at a time. Just this is happening. Just this is happening. And hearing a bird song or feeling the wind, the warmness on your face or the coolness. So from that vantage point where there's a lot of, there could be a lot more spaciousness and um, patience with what's happening, there can arise the insights that are ready to arise but need that, those patient moments when we're not kind of pushing it out from our striving and our wanting. It was interesting to learn that during the Buddhist time, he laid down certain rules uh, for those who joined the, the bhikkhuhood or the monkhood. 
And uh, like we do on retreat, we need those rules to protect our practice. There's certain ways that we do our practice here so that we can give each other space to be in seclusion and silence. And um, it helps for the transformation, purification of the heart-mind. So these rules of conduct were um, called the Code of Conduct, the Vinaya. And until this day, there are 227 rules. But before there were any rules, the only kind of admonition or rule or guideline was patience. And, pa- and patience continues today to be a very important role in, in um, being in a, a monastery like that. There's some beautiful stories about patience all over the place. And it's interesting um, that I, for a lot of people, that um, I got this story out of the sports section of the Honolulu Advertiser, <laughs> this next one I'm going to tell you about. Because it's about a martial uh, artist who was in Japan, and he took people from all over the world to study with him. So this young man traveled to Japan to the school of this famous martial artist. And uh, I don't know about now, but by the way, um, Hawaii is populated by a lot of Buddhists, so these kinds of things are brought out even in the sports sections of our newspapers. So this is a story. A young boy traveled across Japan to a school of a famous martial artist. When he arrived at the dojo, he was given an audience by the sensei, the teacher. What do you wish from me? The master asked. And the young boy said, I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka in the land. How long must I study? And his sensei said, 10 years at least. And so the young boy said, what if I study twice as hard as all your students? And he said, 20 years. (laughs) 20 years? What if I practice day and night with all my effort? 30 years, was the master's reply. So he, young boy said, how is it that each time I say I'll work harder, you tell me that it will take longer? And the master answered, the answer is clear. When your one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. And so that's why it's called mindfulness, you know, fullness of mind totally present. So by this story, we learn that it doesn't help to rush something as precious, as important as a development of deep peace, liberating understanding through the purification of, the, of greed, hatred, and delusion in our minds and hearts. This is not a quick turnaround thing. So a full and complete presence gives us more clarity and a far-ranging view of the practice. So in the early years of practice, um, I would hear the teachings and feel a sense of urgency. And I couldn't understand everything. You know, they, I heard so many Dhamma talks that I didn't know what they were talking about. But somehow I have had a lot of faith and just stayed on, stayed on, stayed on. And there was a great hunger for the Dhamma, for me, spiritual urgency. And a good bit of impatience, too. 
So I, I learned about this. What I'm saying is not from books. I mean, I know I make quotes, but a lot of this is from my own hard-earned practice. So Suzuki Roshi one time said um, that your practice is rather greedy when you become discouraged with it. And that's called Dharma greed. So I realized that there was Dharma greed in my practice. And I mean, you know, we could have greed for a lot of things. And Dharma greed is like, whoa, those two things kind of don't go together. You know, they're opposite of each other. So I remembered going to the teacher, Manindraji, at the time and saying that um, I wanted to really get somewhere. And I had these thoughts, repeating thoughts, I'm not good enough. You know, and one thought would lead to another and pretty soon I would just be overwhelmed with um, just not have any confidence in myself and couldn't go on and want to give up. And Manindraji said, would say, oh, yogi mind, yogi mind. And so I realized, um, you know, it's a mind that's overwhelmed. And it's, it came from one little thought that had more and more, remember the times I couldn't do it, and I made a cement path all the way to the future that was so solid that it's this way now, it was that way in the past, and it will be in the future, which is pure delusion. That's what you call delusion, <laughs> you know, thinking that the way it is now is going to be the way it is forever. And Manindra said, yogi mind, yogi mind. So a lot, for a lot of years, I knew it was an overwhelm, but one time, one of, um, of course, my, my Dharma friend, Steve Armstrong, described it in a beautiful way. He said, the magnification, this is description of yogi mind. Just see if this tunes into your experience. The magnification of the insignificant to a crisis stage. <laughs> Anybody experience that on the path? So Manindra pointed out that I might have a hidden agenda and to let go of it. So I learned that patience is this willingness to allow this ripening process to take place, that you, you, just, can't, you just can't make it go any faster. He would have a famous saying, at least for me, that when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. You, you just can't brush it. When the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. So it gave me heart to learn, um, it heartened my, my practice to learn that His, Holy Dalai, His Holiness the Dalai Lama answered some questions in this way about his path of practice when the interviewer asked him, have you made progress in your practice? And he responded somewhat like this, I'm just paraphrasing. He said, one year cannot see very much progress. Five years, little bit. You can imagine him saying that, little bit. Ten years, some. Twenty years, yes, now I can see some practice. So those of you who think that it's, you know, one, two, three retreats, just you, it's a long path ahead. And it, it can be really, you know, interesting. And some of it can be really enjoyable, too. So why did the Buddha... <laughs> That's when the bell rings, right? 
or that's when it's time to go to bed. Or, but it could be when you have that exquisite moment of calm and you go home and it was one exquisite moment, but the rest of it was pure you-know-what. But you come back because of that exquisite moment. So we discover that this quality activates and actualizes a lot of other beautiful and virtuous qualities like equanimity, that spacious, non-reactive balance that we can have. So it goes into something even more powerful sometimes. It's not just this ability to be present, but this ability to be non-reactive in that present moment, in each passing present moment. It's a willingness sometimes to not be reactive. It's, you know, okay, just settle back. You can pause. That's all right. And in India, there's a colloquial way of translating equanimity. It's seeing with patience. Just seeing this moment with a lot. It's really wide. It's not like this narrow path that you have to trot on. It's just, you can relax on it. It's really wide. You can pause You don't have to keep rushing forward. Seeing the path with patience, it's like when you're a grandmother or grandfather or elder, no matter whether you have children or not, you're an elder and you see youngsters going along the path and it's difficult for them. And there's a a lot of seeing that with equanimity because we've been down that road and seeing that with patience. So it supports equanimity, it supports endurance, like this gentle flowing strength of a river. Um, I love this quote by A.A. Milne, who, you know, Winnie the Pooh author. Rivers know this. There is no hurry. We shall get there someday. I don't know who he was talking to in that story, but it's like a gentle flowing river. It's the strength of a river it's like you can go around obstacles or you can wait till, you know, something holds you back and then the, the flow gets so high that it goes over. Or you can just wait there, you know, for however long it takes for the flow to start again. So um, I was told that this is from the Tibetan practice of Dzogchen. Forget about the notion of progress It's short moments many times. And I've heard Joseph say this, too, um, many times in his Dharma talks, and that really has helped me. It's short moments many times. So at the same time, we can appreciate and value the journey, no matter how long it takes. That's when there's joy, there's happiness along the way. It can really be a moment of enjoyment, a moment of yeah, this is, I feel a lot of things coming together in this moment. And it helps you take the next step along the way. So a living example of this for me, for this gentle flowing constancy uh, of a river, is the endurance of Aung San Suu Kyi of um, Myanmar, uh, also known as Burma. So many of you know who she is. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 and she initiated the nonviolent movement for the establishment of democracy in Burma. 
She spent the, uh, a good part of the last two decades in, in house arrest or in jail, incarcerated in Burma for one reason or another. So she reminds me of this gentle flowing strength, this quality of non-opposition. By the way, she was a student of Upandita who taught her metta and vipassana also. She didn't push against um, but she just stayed with the flow. I, I mean, I don't know totally about her, but just I've read about her a lot and heard about her a lot. She had great influence and integrity without being forcefulness, forceful in her beingness. And um, during a very uh, difficult time after she was incarcerated, she... Um, was uh, there was a news release about her because she went to a trial for some ridiculous reason that she was she was incarcerated first and then she went to a trial for that. So um, the, this is the description of the news release she was at uh, that the news release was telling about. She entered the room where a lot of generals and uh, there were people there of the, you know, the hierarchy of the, um, the rulers of, uh, of Burma. The government officials and the court officials and various military leaders were sitting around. And the description of the news media was like this. I'm pretty much quoting the words. She was serene, beautiful, carried a deep sense of non-harming friendship and nobility as she walked to her place. Then the government officials and generals and military stood up and a very natural response in respect for her nobility and being, they put their hands together in pranam and they bowed to her. So can you imagine? Here she was on trial and by all these people who, and they stood up and they bowed to her. That's the kind of nobility and non-opposition and wisdom that she exuded in her life. And she's endowed with a kind of patience that sees the long road ahead. So I really believe that she's living her life in a really genuine way, just being herself. So, in fact, I just want to take a, an off-road here to uh, say a little story I heard about her. When she was in house rest, arrest one time, um, the military came to the door and um, came to the gate, and she thought that maybe she was going to be arrested during that time. She wasn't, but she thought she was. So I want to go back a little bit and describe something about her. In the time before she was in house, house arrest, she would go on her rounds, you know, to talk to people. And what the women of Burma would do is th- they would spray perfume on her because the women of Burma, I guess, like perfume. And sometimes the perfume isn't so great, you know. But um, uh, So one time... Um, she was, she was in this house arrest, 
and the military were walking in the door, and she and her assistant were walking towards the military. And she whispered to her assistant, this isn't kind of a biography of hers that I read when I was in Burma. It isn't released here. And she said, don't worry. I have some French perfume in my pocket. She took it out and she sprayed it on her and the assistant. And she said, we can meet them with perfume. I mean, it was such a a ridiculous thing, but it was a little moment of joy for her. And um, she said, it's not Charlie either. You know, Charlie, (laughs) something like that. Um, That kind of perfume you buy in the drugstore. So she just had that kind of way about her, you know, just kind of going around boulders and the boulders of the military there and being herself and this very wise woman. So then in that time, I was watching a lot of interviews of her. I was really interested in what was going on at that time. So there was this one interviewer from, from Australia, and she asked Aung San Suu Kyi, when you see or hear or know what the military establishment is doing to the people of your country, don't you want to bring them down? And just in her very expressive eyes and in her kind of British accent, she said, Oh, no, not at all. I want to raise them up to their potential as human beings. And it was like totally from a genuine heart. It wasn't like she's got this, you know, kind of high attitude, but it isn't really reflected or integrated in her being. So there's that quality of gentle, flowing endurance in in that kind of person that we're all developing here as we're going on this path. So it's not only important for our path here so that we can open up to beautiful moments that give us the grace and the nobility to carry on during hard times in our practice, but also to carry on in our lives, because sometimes it really gets so difficult that um, we just want to blow up sometimes, and it's, it's really, really hard to keep going. So um, there's one, I was looking up some quotes, and this one comes from uh, James Merritt in The Nine Keys of Successful Leadership, and he says, Patience is the ability to idle your motor when you feel like stripping your gears. And sometimes I must say that I felt like doing that in in my life. But there could be that impatience. You feel that, but it's not acted out. So maybe you see it, you feel it with that moment of clear, mindful attention. But it doesn't have to be acted out. So I want to tell you an experience of when I I did act it out, and and I really regret it. And um, this is about my mother. And it really awakened me to my sensitivity um, to being patient in my life. So there was this time when I had this endless list of doing this and that, and just getting to everything within a certain amount of time. So I had my mom with me, and she usually came to visit um, for a month or six weeks or two months just to be with the family, 
she loved to go shopping. And so I would take her shopping, and she was slow. You know, she was in her late 70s, early 80s maybe, and she would just like to push the cart around and see all the things that she could get for our family so she could cook, you know, the wonderful uh, Filipino dishes that we all enjoyed. So there was this time when I was really impatient inside, and I really wanted to get on with it, and she wasn't going at my pace, and um, I just was hurrying her along and said, Mom, we have to go. You know, so I, I said, I'll push the cart for you, and we really have to pay for this now and get going. So I was pushing the cart, and I was noticing that she was going, you know, not at her pace, just really kind of trying to keep up with me. And then we got in the line, I paid the bill, we got in the car, and then she sat down beside me. And um, then I, I was starting the car, and I heard her sniffling. And I said, Mom, what's going on? And I kind of knew, you know, she wasn't, she was sad that I treated her that way. And so in her, in her way, she didn't speak much English. She, she kept her language mostly um, during the, her being alive. And she said, um, I'm shedding a tear. I'm shedding a tear. And I just never will forget that. And I wish I could have done it differently. I just said, I'm so sorry, Mom. So, you know, there's some things that are really hard to forgive yourself about when we kind of show that impatience in the world, especially to our loved ones. So this is a long-range view, and it's like a wide-range view to really know the importance of of patience in our lives um, here in retreat and also uh, at home. So there's no hurry. You know, in time, we'll all get there. And it, it really takes time. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.